make this announcement. The second one is this. Whenever we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper on any given Sunday, uh, we utilize that opportunity as a special opportunity, uh, not only to make sure that the foundation is clear between us and God, and we put no other wood, hay, or stubble on that foundation that Christ Jesus has laid, but we also uh, take the opportunity during the Lord's Supper time to uh, take a benevolence offering. And that benevolence offering is to uh, help in our ministry to those that are in need. And so at the end of the service today, uh, there will be some of our ushers that will be standing in the foyer with an extra plate. We're not trying to shake you down for more. Uh, it's simply they're holding the plate for the receiving of the benevolence offering on your way out. And so I wanted to make you aware of that before I lost of that thought and didn't get that expressed to you at the close of the service. Because when we close the service today, I want it to be a holy time. I want it to be between you and God. I want you to be seeking and searching your heart as to what God has revealed to you today. And, and, and if God doesn't reveal something to you today, don't sit there and think, well, God didn't talk to me. I'm worthless. Don't think anything like that at all. But I know there are some people here today that need to hear what needs to be said from 1 Corinthians. Because just face it, we've been coming together for the Lord's Supper for about 2,000 years as a tradition, as the church. For about 2,000 years, that's been a part of the tradition of the church. But it's more than a tradition. It's more than just an event. It's more than just coming together. For the Lord's Supper itself was given by the Lord to the disciples. The Lord Jesus set the precedent for what the Lord's Supper is when he had them in that upper room and he laid out the elements and he administered the Lord's Supper to his disciples as well. And, and Paul, in his instructions for the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, also uh, includes himself as one of those disciples. I believe it was a very special and solemn occasion that the Lord Jesus, after the Damascus Road experience, actually took Paul through the instructions of the Lord's Supper. That's why he's able to give such a degree of instructions as he gives. And, and, and Paul sees it as way more than just a tradition, as way more than just an event. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse 23. This is what Paul says. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. There was a reception that he gained from the Lord. The gift of the Lord's Supper is not a light thing. It, it should be a weighty matter, a matter that we come to this table and, and we look at the elements, we look at the bread and we say that is the broken body of Christ. We look at the juice and say that is the blood spilled on the cross. Of course these elements are representative of what Jesus Christ has done for you, but in that representation there was a real man of Nazareth named Jesus that really died a real death on a real cross to pay for your real sin. So that your sin would be forgiven, really. And you wouldn't have to pay for them on your own account. So that you would not serve the eternal separation from the glory of God in a real place called hell. 
but would be in the real presence of God in a real place called heaven for all eternity, fulfilling the very creation he created you to be at the onset of creation when he created man and woman and called them Adam and Eve, and they lived in that sinless perfection in the Garden of Eden. God has a restoration of all of that for you, and we sit here and we look at heaven as if, oh, well, I'm going to heaven when I die. Oh, my friend, if we could only glimpse the grandeur of the glory that God has in store for us, I I believe we would never enter a day and set it aside as just being a normal day. I believe every step of our way would be a step closer to eternity in the glory of God. And when we pass someday, may our children do as we have witnessed over the past few weeks, sing songs of glory to God for what He has in store for those that have gone before us. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. My friends, what's your hope? Is it just to participate in another sacrificial supper? Or is it to say, God died for me and I'm going to live for him that in eternity the glories of God may just continue to be expressed out of my life, not start to be expressed out of my life. You see, eternity should be a continuation of the life you've lived here in all of the glory that he's given you to show and to shine. The Lord's Supper is a vivid presentation of that sacrificial death. And man is prone to cheapen things that are weighty. Man is prone to devalue things that are costly and precious. In 168 B.C., the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, cheapened something that God had instituted for the nation of Israel to a great degree as he invaded Jerusalem, captured the city, marched into that temple and erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus to overshadow the throne of God. But not only did he do that, he took a pig and shed its blood upon that altar of God to cheapen and devalue that which God had instituted and given to Israel as a reminder of his forgiveness of sin. As sacrifices would be given upon that altar and blood would run down of that altar, it would remind them that sin cost life, but yet life will cover sin. But not any life, it took the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to cover our sin. But yet, Antiochus Epiphanes cheapened the very picture of what Christ would do on the cross. That brings a very real question. Do we do the same thing? Do we cheapen the value of what God has done? Do we lessen the reality of the covering and forgiveness of sin that God has spilt for us. Do we do like Antiochus Epiphanes and sacrifice filth on top of the spilt blood of Jesus Christ in our life? Do we erect statues of gods and goddesses that we uphold and esteem to be valuable to us that actually uh, overshadow the very work that God has done in our lives? Do we do the same thing? You say, how would I do that? Well, what's your foundation that you're living out of? 
What are the what are the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit that you're living for? We may not be so different than Corinth in our action of living for self and our need of surrendering all because that's where they were. They were at that point that they lived for themselves and they needed a surrender to God of themselves. And I see the American church and I see the church throughout the world in these 19, 20 centuries past still falling into the very same framework that the church of Corinth fell into. For this is what Paul warned in Corinthians. Look at verse 17 of chapter 11. In verse 17 of chapter 11, Paul warns them. He says, now in giving these instructions, what instructions are we talking about? We're talking about the instructions of the supper. He says, now in giving these instructions, I I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. When you read in Scripture, a very good thing to do is to define the terms that are presented to you by the terms that are surrounding them. We call that context. And and as Paul is talking to the church of Corinth, and and he says in these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. There's two things that you could look at that verse and say, let me define these by the context that's around them, by the words that have been given before and the words that are given after. And, And those two things are for the better, and for the worse. And, and, and as you look at that, the worse, well, what could that be? In the book of Corinthians, the worst has been laid out in full. For when you go back through the book of Corinthians, what you see Paul talking about in this book is that they are still living for self. They've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They know their name's written in the Lamb's book of life. They understand that there's going to be hallelujah one day, but they're living like hell still today. Why? Because they're living for themselves. It's all about me. And in that situation, still living for self, what are they doing? Well, they're choosing selfish sides. That's one of the sins they're doing. They're choosing selfish sides. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Find with me first uh, verse 3 in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul asks this question. He says, for you, are that's not a question, it's a statement, my fault. Didn't look at the punctuation mark ahead of time. For you are still carnal. He makes a statement. And he goes on to express what that statement of carnality is. He says, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? We're not mere men, Christian. We're not mere men because the presence of God is supposed to indwell the child of God. The presence of the Holy Spirit is supposed to empower the steps of God. The presence of God's Word is supposed to train and teach the child of God. We are not to be mere men made of clay walking on a terrestrial globe living like any other Joe. We're supposed to be God's people living in God's way for God's glory. And my friends, 
how many is that indicative of in this church here today? I can't answer that for you. Only you can. Is that your steps? Or are we still in the mere men category? Living just like everybody else. Well, how do you know if you're living just like everybody else? Paul just expressed it. He just expressed how you know if you're living like everybody else. Do you have envy in your life? Do you look at other people's goods? Do you look at other people's goals? Do you look at other people's agendas? Do you look at other people's possessions? Do you look at other people's positions in life and say to yourself, he ain't doing very good there. I wish I could be in that place. I would do so much better of a job. I tell you what, some... Hold on a second. Where's that envy coming from? Is it coming from God who teaches to be content with all things? Or is it coming from Satan? How do you know if you're living like a mere man where there are envy, strife? Is that a permanent position of your life that you always find strife? I didn't make the point. Paul did. And if that's your permanent position in life that you always find strife, I can just tell you it's not strife that's finding you. That's what mere men do. Envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men. That's a case in point uh, of choosing selfish sides, agendas, and, and positions that simply make you feel good uh, about whatever it is about yourself that you feel good about. Paul has a correction for that, by the way. Look at verse 9. Here's Paul's correction to the church of Corinth. In verses 9 through 11, Paul says this, For we are God's fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers. What's that mean? You've been enjoined with God. All selfish agendas, all selfish motives, all selfish desires should be moved to the side so that God's agendas, motives, and desires become the stepping stones of your life. If we are enjoined with God, He should be calling the shots, not us. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. By the way, the foundation isn't said here, but the foundation is Jesus. I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He fills that in in case anybody's wondering. Is the foundation the denomination you belong to? Is the foundation the, 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 the set of eschatology that you esteem? 
Is the foundation the music that you sing? Is the foundation the way you dress when you come to church? Is the foundation uh, some social agenda that you think would be helpful to others? Is the foundation some political affiliation that you uphold and bolster? No, my friends, the foundation is the same as it's always been. The foundation is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And I ask you a question, if you believe that, and if you agree with that, then let me ask you the question, what are you building on that with? Well, I love Jesus. I think he's the foundation. But let me chase all these agendas that the world throws out so that I can, I don't know what you're doing. Because if you keep chasing agendas, you can't say yes to something and say yes to something else at the same time. If you say yes to agendas, you're saying no to what's more important. That's what Paul means by the worst, not the better. You're choosing the worst, still living for self, choosing selfish sides and building upon the foundation that Christ is giving you with that carnality that's envy and strife and division not only do we fall back into choosing selfish sides but choosing immoral lives Choosing immoral lives is another case in point that Paul brings up. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul says it right at the beginning here of this next train of thought that he enters into in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. Where he says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And we could probably say that here today, couldn't we? We could probably say in the church that sits in this congregation right here, right now, today, there's sexual immorality among you. Not that I've heard a report. Not that anybody has told me. But just looking at the numbers. All of the websites that filter pornography to the world like it's candy. Cheap and a high and lofty blessing that God has given us called sex. Degrading men and women throughout this world has seen its highest shares of volume over the past six months. And every study that comes down the pike says church men and church women are just as enticed. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He says it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you. He goes on to say, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man 
has his father's wife. Man's with his mother-in-law. Paul says that's beyond sinister. Paul tells us that there is no sin that has uh, taken you, but that is what not common to man. And, and so there is that sinfulness that still wells up in us, that still reaches out beyond us, but it still should not be excused as, oh well, I'm just human. If we are resting upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, then we've got to heed the correction that Paul gives to such deprivation. He is telling the church that even though immorality is in their presence, he gives them specific instructions to not let immorality find welcome home. Don't let immorality find refuge. Don't let immorality find safe harbor. Don't let immorality find free passage in the body of Christ. Why? Because the body of Christ is supposed to be different and distinct than the world around us. We're not supposed to be the same same as everybody else we're supposed to be built upon the foundation of jesus christ living for the glory of god stepping our lives empowered by the presence of god and not succumbing to the things that everybody else succumbs to we're supposed to be better than that not because there's anything in me that makes me better than that except for the holy spirit if I'm listening to him, I'll be walking in the direction he desires us to walk to. But if we're quenching the Holy Spirit and doing our own things, look at verse 5 of that same chapter, chapter 5. This is Paul's instructions uh, for what should take place. He says, deliver such a one to Satan. You see, this one has chosen. He's not going to listen to the presence of the Spirit of God anyway. And in so choosing, he's going to bring other Christians with him. And it's going to begin to become commonplace to let immorality just be a part of who you are as a body. So since he's already chosen to not listen to the presence of the Spirit of God, Paul says, let him go the way he's going. He wants Satan Turn him over to him. Quit giving safe harbor. Quit giving safe passage. Quit excusing him as just being a man and we all sin. We should walk to a higher standard empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says turn him over to Christ. Deliver such a one. Turn him over to Satan. Deliver such a one to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, this instruction that Paul gives is for an end of reconciliation. If he's not going to be reconciled, if he's not going to be reconciled, this side of his death, the hopes is, is that coming through the refining fire that burns away the wood, hay, and stubble, he's going to be re reconciled in glory. That's the whole point Paul's making. 
Still living for self means we're choosing selfish sides. We're choosing immoral lives. And we're choosing prideful agendas. Case in point, Paul points out in chapter 6 of verse 1. Look at what he writes to the church of Corinth. Who, by the way, he's given these instructions to the Lord's Supper for. And and in chapter 6, he says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. He's given instructions here on what it means to have a prideful agenda. And that's what they have. Somebody offended me. Somebody took something from me that didn't belong to me. Somebody hurt me. Somebody, somebody, somebody. It's always somebody, isn't it? Paul says that's just pride. That's just pride welling up, cloaking itself in a righteous posture. But in fact, our posture doesn't always portray the truth of our heart. Because quite often it's just pride that masquerades itself that away. You say, how do you know he's talking about pride? Well, because of his correction that he gives. The correction that he gives gives is that of humble submission. Look at verses 6 and 7 to this problem that they're having in the church of Corinth. In verse 6 and 7, he says, But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Here's his correction. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Did you know that was an option? Did you know that was an option to say, you know what? I'll take the fault. I'll take the blame. I don't have to be right. I don't have to demand my way. And I don't have to force you to see what I see. Why can't we just say, okay, I'll be wrong for you. And not, I'll be wrong for you. But in reality, let it pass. Paul's correction to them is simply that why do you not rather accept wrong why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated because i've been doing this for so long i know what the right thing to do is Because that's the way we've always. Because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Which one do you actually see Christ in? Do you actually see Christ in putting your foot down and making a point of what it's supposed to be? Or do you see Christ in actually serving another for the betterment of themselves? Do you not trust that Christ can bring some 
hard-headed, stubborn fool to a point and place someday where he turns around and he comes back and he says, you know what? You were right. And I ask your forgiveness, but oh, my friends, if you demand it on the front end, you're never going to get that on the back end. Paul says, why don't you just rather be wrong? And you know, Jesus actually, specifically addressed this same issue. For Jesus said himself in chapter 5, verse 40 of Matthew, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, wait, that belongs to me. Jesus says, uh-uh, not anymore. Give it to him. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, mm -mm, just be wrong. Just submit. Just give it. Oh, and by the way, won't you add your tunic to that as well? Give them a double blessing. Paul's whole point to the church of Corinth in their preparation to take of the Lord's Supper is that they were still living for self. They were choosing selfish sides amongst themselves. They were choosing immoral lives beyond themselves. And they were choosing prideful agendas uh, to defend themselves. And if you go on and you keep reading in the, in the book of Corinth, what you find is that the further instructions that Paul gives from chapter 7 to 9, he talks about marriage uh, and what a proper marriage is and how to live in relationship to one another even when it's not a perfect situation he, he talks about things that are offered to idols he, he talks about providing for pastors he talks about being a servant to all men and, and you know whenever you talk to your children about something why do you talk to your children about something because that's probably what they're needing to hear there's probably lack there already and you're addressing that lack and that's what Paul was doing in all of these situations as he talked to the church of Corinth. Certainly, Paul's lesson in chapter 10 of the Israelites' appetite and their desire for idolatry pointed back to Corinth's appetite as well and their desire for idolatry and going back to the old ways of worship and going back to the horoscopes and, and going back to the soothsayers and going back to the prognosticators of the day. Rather than going back to the word of God that's the foundation and the completed work of Jesus Christ that means though the world's going to hell in a handbasket, I am. First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 through 15 this is what Paul says to them concerning their going back to their old ways. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You say flee because they're not. I speak to you as wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Well, what's that in relation to? Well, it's in relation to the cup. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessings 
which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? He's saying to the church of Corinth, you're cheapening the sacrifice of the Lord. You're sacrificing filth on top of the shed blood of Christ. You're erecting God's little letter G of selfishness that are towering above the body of Christ that died to pay the sin debt you owe. You are making Christ and the foundation of Christ shrink in the shadows of every sinful thing that you're pursuing in your own nature. That's what you're doing, Corinth. Is it really that much different for us? Has church become about something other than Christ? Has worship, has discipleship, what are we doing this for? The better question is, who are we doing this for? And if you think church is a self help place it's not oh god will help you he will build you but let me tell you something the building blocks that god uses to shape you more into the image of jesus christ they hurt sometimes they wound deeply And if you're not in this for the glory of God, you'll be out of it for your own glory very soon after joining. Or you'll try to change it. One or the other, that's one direction. Or the other. Because prideful agendas and selfish motives quickly come glaring back at us in the face. So the weightiness of the matter is that this is about Christ and the foundation is Christ. The church is about Christ. The budget is about Christ. The policies are about Christ. The positions are about Christ. The agendas all should be about Christ. Everything we do and everything that we are should be laid on that foundation known as Jesus Christ. And if we start using any aspect of the church we belong to for our own glory to assert ourselves then we need to get out of the way and we need to cease being about me and we've got to be about Christ we don't erect idols over the foundation that's been laid that's why Paul says in his instructions back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 17 now maybe it's more clear Now, when given these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. You see, for the better is Christ. And I pray that's why you're here. I pray that's what governs your steps and changes your heart. And directs your mind that you're living for Christ. And it's not just a song. 
that you sing. The worse is everything we just talked about. The better is Christ. The worst is to keep being you. Do you realize that every person that's ever been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we needed to be saved, that there was something fatally wrong with each one of us that needed the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us, and that something that was wrong with each one of us was sin, why would we want to keep being the same old us? Why would we not want the better person that God is creating us to be? So Paul is calling for that evaluation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Maybe this makes more sense to you now in verse 27 through 32. This is what Paul says. Therefore, whoever eats this bread, again, this is the instructions of the Lord's Supper, come together for the better. Not the worst. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, coming together for the worst. <coughs> will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For who <coughs> eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if you would judge ourselves, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Verse 32 closes it out. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. Turn him over to Satan. Don't let him have safe harbor amongst you. Let a judgment begin upon him that will bring him back to the condemnation that his sin deserves so that he comes back to the grace that he's been given. When we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So the whole thing that this is before us today for is that. Judge yourself. Where are you in relation to who you're living for? The foundation you're living upon is it still for self or is it for the person of Christ judge yourself in that matter to see if you're taking the supper and, and your participation in the bride of Christ and you're living out the life of Christ is about him or is it about you you, you don't have to be guilty of 2,000 years worth of traditions to the selfish nature or the immoral or pride-filled sins that obscure our view of the foundation of Christ. Matter of fact, I want you to be guilty today, but I want you to be guilty of coming clean before God in those areas that he desires you to become clean in, those areas that you've stepped back into the way of the world rather than into the way of the word. That's the only guilt you need. 
is to be guilty of righteousness. And so as we get ready to take of the Lord's Supper, here's the charge I believe Paul would give straight from Corinthians. And he does. Confess your sins. Admit to God your need. Trust him to change you from the inside out. Confess any selfish sides, any immoral living, any prideful agendas that you have so that nothing, nothing comes between you and the foundation of Christ. Does that sound like it's scriptural? Why don't we do that more often? But it can start here today. So I'm going to pray. After I pray, Jeff's going to come lead in worship. Don't stop the sacred moment right now by packing up and putting up. I'm just asking you as humbly as I can, just hold off. I'm going to pray. Jeff's going to come and lead in worship. You have the opportunity to stand and sing. And when you're ready, no matter where we are in the song, you can come and take of the elements. Taking of them, standing upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But let's get first things first. Make sure that when you come and take, that this is about Christ and not you. Our hearts and minds clear. Father, what a humbling day it is for myself as well to realize just how quickly we can replace the sufficiency of Jesus Christ with ourselves again. God, may today be a movement of those that say, Christ, you are my all in all. And there's nothing, nothing that I can lay upon that foundation except for what you have done. That, Father, even my works are nothing outside of you. And so, God, as we take of this Lord's Supper today, may that be a reckoning, a judgment in each one of our hearts. And may we remember truthfully the words that Jesus gave when he spoke of the bread and invited us to come take, for that's his body broken. When he spoke of the juice and invited us to come take, for that is his blood spilt. And when he spoke of the promise that we would not take of it again. With him. Except for when we meet him in glory. He's coming back. And he's taking us home. And I look forward to that expectation truly knowing it's true. Let that also govern our time. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.
Amen. Deacons, I'm going to ask you to rise first and move on up to.